On the 8th of May last year, I was boarding my regular flight back to Edinburgh from the delights of Luton Airport. As we shuffled along the departure line, I checked my phone and saw that Spurs were trailing 2-0 to Ajax in the second leg of the Champions League semi-final. They'd already lost the first leg 1-0, so were down 3-0 on aggregate, with just the second half left to play. I sighed deeply. But as a lifelong Spurs fan, I got used to such disappointments. We boarded the EasyJet plane, obediently turned off our devices and settled down for the quick hop up to Scotland. Upon landing at Edinburgh, I did what all passengers do. I turned on my phone and checked for messages as well as the final football score to see how many more goals we'd conceded. What I saw was so shocking that the stranger sitting next to me and I broke all Edinburgh social conventions and started talking to each other about what had happened. Was it possible? How could it be? What a turnaround. Spurs had somehow managed to score three second-half goals and qualify for the final of the greatest club competition in the world, where incidentally normal service was resumed. And a fortnight ago, we began to listen into Habakkuk as he faced the wickedness of his own people, and he was angry, angry with the situation and angry with God. He says this in verse 2 of chapter 1. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? And when God told him what he was going to do, he was going to use the cruel Babylonians to execute his judgment, Habakkuk grew even more indignant. Uh, there in verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And each one of us has been able to relate at some time or another to those emotions and hard questions. Why, God, are you there? Do you know what you're doing? And it may be that actually that's how you feel at this moment. You're close to giving it all up. You really can't believe anymore that a loving God is in control. Why did he allow that to happen to you? Why is he allowing you to go through such pain? What's up with this coronavirus? Why the isolation and separation? Where are you, God? Well, it's time to switch our phones back on and see how Habakkuk's doing. Is he still stewing in his anger? Well, maybe it's even got worse. What's the latest on his situation? Well, turn to Habakkuk chapter three, and you'll see there's a greater turnaround than you could ever imagine. For at the end of that chapter, in the most famous words of this book, we read this verses 17 to 18. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. 
Habakkuk, what's happened? What changed your mind? What's turned your emotions from anger to joy, your heart from doubt to trust? Well, in answering those questions, we'll move closer ourselves to dealing with our nagging doubts and hurt-filled questions. So let's have a look at this final chapter. The first thing we need to do is notice that this chapter, like the previous two, has a specific shape. Chapter 1 featured two complaints from Habakkuk, sandwiching God's answer. Have a look in your Bible at the headings used there, which uh, make this plain. Chapter 2, as we noticed last week, is built around five woes addressed to the Babylonians and through them to the occupants of Judah and then on to those who choose to live relying on their own strength and efforts rather than entrusting God. Now, this week, we can notice that chapter 3 is topped and tailed by its description as a musical prayer. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionoth. Shigionoth? No, I don't know what Shigionoth means, and actually neither do those far wiser than me. They basically suggest it's probably a reference to how song lyrics are constructed, maybe the meter that's used. And then the final line of the book, as we see how it's topped and tailed, it says, for the director of music on my stringed instruments. So this just underlines that this chapter is to be sung, accompanied by the Fender Stratocasters of their day. So what we have here is something that's packed with emotion. You see, that's what songs and prayers do. They reflect the heart. They express feelings. But the next division in this chapter, the next way it's sort of topped and tailed, shows us that these feelings are not just sentimental. They're not just gushy love songs. They're based on substance, on truth on Revelation. Verse 2, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. And actually, this is then deliberately echoed towards the end of the chapter. Here's the, the tailing of that. Uh, it's there in verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. So what we're dealing with in this chapter is not wishful thinking. It's not that Habakkuk has worked himself up into some state of positive thinking. It's not escapism. It's not building yourself a castle in the sky. Habakkuk's emotions have been captured by truth, by what God himself has revealed. And before we get into the heart of the chapter, let me underline again for all of us hurting people, God's answer is rooted and grounded in solid reality, not in fanciful thinking that has no basis or foundation. This call for faith in Habakkuk is not for you to screw up your eyes as tightly as you can and say, oh, I, I believe, I believe, and hope that that in itself will be enough to answer your questions. No, no. 
We're going on to see that Habakkuk's response is based completely on what God has already done and revealed. So let's get into the meat of this chapter and we'll notice there are three clear divisions. Have a look, you'll actually be able to notice this yourselves. Have a look at verses three to seven and see how God is addressed in those verses. The words that keep repeating here are his and he. So God is being addressed in what we call the third person. It's what the clever people call a third person personal pronoun. Now have a look at verses 8 to 15. How is God being addressed here? What words are being repeated? What personal pronouns are in action? Just have a look. It's the words you and yours. This is known as the second person personal pronoun. So there's a clear shift and in a moment we'll see why. Now have a look at verses 16 to 19. What personal pronouns are in use there? Well it's the words I and my. These are known as first personal, first person personal pronouns. So once again, you and I can see that there is a clear shift in what Habakkuk is saying, that there's a a clear shape to this chapter. And we can follow these divisions by noticing that each of these three sections describes a different part of God's activity. Let's look first at that first section, verses three to seven. Now I've called this God's awesome power over all his creation, God's awesome power over all his creation. See, Habakkuk makes some references here that would have been readily understood by his listeners, but aren't as quickly grasped by folks like us over 2,600 years later. Have a look at verses three and four. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Now the area being referred to here is Sinai, where God first made himself known to Moses and where the Israelites were to receive the Ten Commandments on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land. It was known as a a place of fire and cloud and smoke a mountain range that physically shook, a place where God's voice thundered out. It was one of the most frightening, awesome and dramatic visions of God's incredible power for his people. Look how it continues, verse five. Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. See, here's a reference to what God did to the Egyptians through the plagues when they refused to let God's people go. And then he goes on to describe the sheer power of God, as seen probably in the massive earthquake that hit Israel about 130 years earlier in 760 BC and is actually mentioned in the books of Amos and Zechariah. Verse six, he stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. And the section concludes by describing God's power 
in defeating the first enemy to fight Israel after she entered the Promised Land and by describing God defeating the Midianites through the work of Gideon and his rag-bag army of 300. So the logic is clear. This is our God. This is the one who reigns. He's not some impotent deity standing helplessly on the sidelines. He's the God of awesome, earth-shattering power, and he intervenes for his people. So whatever you're going through, remember this, our God reigns. He's the God who spoke the universe into being. He's the one who made the stars also, as the writer to Genesis tells us in that glorious throwaway line. He's the one of awesome power, who can intervene for his people whenever he chooses. He's the one who's in control of all that you're going through. But Habakkuk moves on to the central section of his sung prayer, where we see this, our second point, God's awesome passion for all his people. God's awesome passion for all his people. And the imagery that Habakkuk uses here is designed to make us think of the great salvation event in the Old Testament. That's the, the crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's forces, as well as the conquest of the promised land under Joshua. That's why we get all the references to rivers and waters. Have a quick scan down the passage. That's verses 8 uh, to 15, and you'll see what I mean. And what's significant for us is that God's awesome passion has two characteristics. Firstly, there's God's passionate anger and wrath directed against wickedness and the enemies of his people. And then secondly, there's God's passionate love directed towards his people. As it says in verse 13, you came out to deliver your people. In fact, in verse 8, when it speaks about God's chariots being ridden to victory, the more literal rendering of the Hebrew reads, your chariot, which is salvation. God's chariot, which is salvation. And this gets unpacked a bit in verse 13. It says, you crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. Now, does that language resonate with you? Does it ring any bells? It certainly would have done to Habakkuk's audience, for it echoes the promises made by God to Satan in Genesis 3, where God promises Satan that the promised rescuer will crush his head. You see, this salvation talked about in Habakkuk 3 is deliberately looking beyond the destruction of the Babylonians and beyond the return from exile to the promised Messiah who would deal Satan a devastating and complete blow. That's what gives verse 13 extra significance. You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. Now, anointed one means Messiah or Christ. And we know that God raised Jesus to life, that on the third day after the crucifixion, 
the stone was rolled away from the tomb and it became evident to all that God had raised the crucified Messiah to life. In the words of verse 13, he saved his anointed one. So do you see what's happening to Habakkuk? He's not only bringing to mind the amazing power of God that's been evidenced down through the centuries, but he's also looking back to those times when God saved his people in the most remarkable ways. And we need to do the same. We need to remember. We need to look back. We need to think about Christ's work on Calvary's cross. We need to see how God's wrath was poured upon Jesus. We need to see how his grace was lavished upon us. God's awesome power and awesome passion at work to save his people. Which leads us to the final point. Thirdly, God's awesome peace in all my circumstances. God's awesome peace in all my circumstances. You see, here's the conclusion. Habakkuk, at the start of this prophecy, had been overwhelmed by the situations he was facing. He ends it by being overwhelmed by the character of God. No longer does he feel he can stand boldly on the top of Jerusalem's walls waiting for an answer. He's been shattered. He's been humbled by this fresh revelation of who God really is. It says this in verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. You see, that was like Job's reaction as well when God made himself known to him. In, in Job 42, we, we read this. Job said this, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. <laughs> that was the Apostle John's reaction when the Son of God made himself known. You remember it, Liam's dealt with that, uh, with that for us in Revelation 1. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And what happens? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You see, what we need at times of trial and heartache, times when those nagging questions are rising to the surface, times when we feel it just doesn't make sense to us, we need him. A fresh glimpse of him, a new understanding of our sovereign, gracious God in all his power and wisdom and mercy. That's why Habakkuk was able to utter those famous words. Let me read them to you again. I heard, verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, 
Though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Now, maybe you could do without figs and grapes and olives. You've maybe even given up eating red meat. But be clear about this. What Habakkuk was describing here pictured absolute devastation. It couldn't get worse. It was ground zero. It was the worst scenario possible. But what's the prophet's reaction? He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. You see, when everything has been taken away, health, possessions, money, security, friends, family, then all I have left is God my Saviour. And nothing can separate me from him. And when I have nothing else to lean on or rest in than him, then that's enough. I'm a forgiven sinner, loved and rescued and known to the eternal creator of all. I'm one who rests in the arms of my saviour, Jesus. Little wonder the church in the majority world is far richer spiritually than we in the affluent West. When all you have is Jesus, that's enough. His beauty, love and mercy shine far brighter. And there are those of you listening to this who can testify that it was through the hardest times of your life that you knew the greatest strength and joy and comfort in your experience of Christ. So my prayer for us all in whatever circumstances we find ourselves is that we may know our gracious God in new and fresh ways, that we'd glory in his glorious power and might, that we'd bask in the truths of his redeeming love, that we'd rejoice in his faithful and certain commitment to his people, that we'd read, meditate upon and saturate ourselves in the revelation of his word. And as that happens, we'll no longer be like vertigo sufferers, unsteadily looking down in fear at difficult terrain that could so easily cause us to fall and stumble. No, we'll be like mountain goats or sure-footed deer who run and bounce over the most difficult mountain ridges and peaks. That's what it says in verse 19. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Let's pray. And I, in our prayer, I want to use the words which are there in verse 2 of chapter 3. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Lord, please. In wrath, remember mercy. We bring ourselves before you right now. Father, you know what's going on in our hearts. You know the questions. You know the pain. You know the heartache and turmoil that so many are feeling. Sovereign God, thank you that your word here in Habakkuk has encouraged us to speak it out, to, to bring it before you, but then also to rest in who you are, to wait upon you. 
to recognize again as we come to the revelation from your word and understand afresh that you're the God of all power and the God of immense, infinite passion and love towards failures like us. Thank you that this is who you are. Thank you that this is what we have received as your children. Lord, please enable us to wait upon you. Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. And Father, for any listening in to this service, we, we pray that if they do not know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, as they try and face the situations of life, as perhaps they feel devastated by what they see around themselves, as they have so many questions, so much pain, Sovereign God, please, would they turn to the only one who can satisfy, the only one who can bring an answer, who can bring hope, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, the one who died on Calvary's cross and rose again victorious to conquer sin and death and hell and to give new life to undeserving people like us. May he be our hope in every situation of life. And we pray it for our good and for his glory. Amen.